dive right into Psalm 103 because this thing is big and there's a lot of content here. There's practically a sermon with every line or every portion. Uh, when Josh, or Pastor Josh, I have to be Reverend Mr. Brother Josh, gave me this, um, I looked at it and I immediately thought of a classic line from a classic movie where I would say, just like Inigo the Spaniard, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Because the idea here is there's just, there's just too much here to really hit everything as much as we should. You guys have your bulletin and you have the three points that I'm going to do. And it's not three points because that's what I was taught in school. You do three points in a poem. Um, the poem, would I guess, would be the psalm. But because there's actually three sections here that we're going to look through. And the idea, I think it's still up there, is that an all-encompassing God, or the all-encompassing God, deserves all-encompassing praise. And that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to read the text to you, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go, like, you know, fasten your seatbelts, keep your hands inside the card at all times, because we're going to fly and try to get through this with, you know, still getting something out of it, not just zooming past. All right. Let's read this here. And my old age glasses have to come out here. All right. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. For as for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the opportunity to stand and to just dive into one of these passages of your incredible word and the opportunity to share what you have opened up right here from David, from the Psalms, to share to us about your all-encompassing power and splendor and glory and these attributes that are listed here. I pray that you will help me do justice to what is here so that we come away from this challenged to be more like Christ, challenged to 
truly have all-encompassing praise to the all-encompassing God. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. So, 22 verses, not a whole lot of time, and we're going to get into this as quickly as possible. So, you can see in your notes here, if you got the bulletin, <clears throat> you know that there's three points here. I'm just going to tell you what they are straight up front. That way, you already understand where we're, we're blocking this out. Because the first part of the, uh, the verses 1 through 5 tell us, uh, they start out with this blessing piece, and it's verses 1 through 5. So, I'm, I said, I basically just summed this up as a call to personal worship. Because the psalmist is talking about himself based on God's character. The second part then from verses 6 to 18 is a reminder of corporate reflection of God's character. Because he is now talking in a broader sense about Israel and talking about the congregation. When I refer to the congregation or the assembly, talking about the people of Israel. And then we get to the last part and he goes back to the blessings. And it is a call to universal worship because the idea is he broadens it to the entire dominion of the sovereign God. So that again is based on God's character. All of it, if you noticed in the points, is based on God's character. The psalmist is pointing to what God, who God is, and that should then lead us to praising Him in the same quality, the same all-encompassing quality as uh, who He is and His qualities. So if we look first... Uh, and how this psalm is divided, we're going to look first at this call to personal worship. And I, I have it in the notes here, exhorting myself to worship God. You guys understand that myself was not present at the time, neither yourself at the time. The myself here is already applying this. David is calling himself to, and I'm not even going to get into authorship issues like some people are like, well, this is really David. It says of David, so I'm just going to go with David here. If you want to think psalmist to feel better about it, feel free to go with psalmist. But the psalmist David is calling to personal worship. He is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's saying that to himself. You can tell, and this is something, one of the things I... I like to do, not because, I won't even explain that. One thing I like to do is teach. And I like to teach about how to read your Bible so that people don't just wait and come and receive something from the speaker, but actually learn to read it on their own. And I, I know that Josh has been a good friend of mine for years. He also thinks that way. So one of the things about that I would give you as a, a key or a clue to reading even the Psalms, because poetic stuff, especially Hebrew poetry, is not always easy to read. You read some things, and you're like, what kind of metaphor is that? You know, that kind of thing. One of the things to do is look for these pronouns. Grammar, Patrick, ah, yeah, but you look for the pronouns because he's saying my soul. He's talking about me, but then all of a sudden he switches gears and he's not talking about me anymore. And then he's going broader and he's talking about an even broader thing. So those are just things you can look for. And this right here is very clear. He's saying it to himself. And I'm already talking about applying it to ourselves by you thinking about you and I'll think about me. And we should exalt God. So he calls to himself and says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And it's not just bless the Lord, but everything that is in me, bless him. And this, the, the word he uses for soul is the same word that we get back in Genesis when he is talking about breathing the breath of life and making us living beings. He is talking about the fact that we, with the thing that makes us God bearers, God image bearers, we should praise and, and worship God. Point on the word bless. You cannot actually bless God because blessing is something you confer to someone else. When it is used in scripture like this, it is a recognition of the source 
of the one who blesses us. So in essence, it's basically saying praise, which is why I'll say praise a bunch more than I'll say bless. Because the blessing, Brazilians have a thing that's kind of interesting. It, it harkens back to the strong Roman Catholic days where they come up to each other. You'll see little kids doing this with uncles and aunts and grandparents and parents and ask for a blessing. Bless me. And they'll say, God bless you. And so that idea is very ingrained in certain cultures. And here the idea of blessing is not that we can in any way do something towards God except to worship him for what he is doing for us. So just so you have that in mind, if that was ever a curiosity of yours, how do we say bless God when we're the recipients? It's a way of reverting that and saying praise God. So he is praising God and it's all, and you're going to notice, because I'm going to point it out, that there are four alls right here in this text, the part of the text, and there are four alls in the latter portion of the, as he gets to the end of the psalm. And it's kind of interesting because here he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And then he goes through a series of, of things and benefits reminding himself why God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise just because he exists, but here he's going to say, forget not all his benefits. Now, that sounds like an insurance package, like, what are my benefits? But the idea is God is, is someone who benefits us, and in that he is saying, soul, I always like that portion in the New Testament where it says, he talked to himself and said self, and yet here we're thinking, soul, listen to me, God has benefited me, and I need to remember all of his benefits, so then he goes through those benefits, and we're going to have to rush through them, but here they are. Forgives all our iniquities, or your iniquities, or in his case, he's remembering your own iniquities. He's saying, soul, remember, he forgives all your iniquities. Well, that could be a sermon series in itself, just to talk about the depth of what it means to have all your iniquities forgiven. Because we're born sinners. We're not born blank slate and people start writing on us, and we're nurtured into sinful or, or blessed be No, we're born broken, defective, straight out of the factory with flaws. There should be a recall on the human race. And it's not because we're harming animals, which is some people have called for a recall because a dolphin died in Argentina or something. No, there should be a recall because we're flawed, defective. We do not do what we were meant to do. We do not worship God. We're loving the wildlife that we're seeing while we're in the States. And we pulled in this morning, and somebody's big old pickup had a little rabbit under it. And all, oh, you know, oh, there's a rabbit. He doesn't care if we're around. But in his frightened, running around, skittering, staying away from that cat that we also saw in the field, you know, in that, he is doing precisely what God made him for. The birds, they're doing exactly what God made them for. Human beings, image bearers of God, never will do what we were made to do apart from God. And so when he forgives all our iniquities, when he cancels that, when he goes to the cross and that which is written against us is abolished and completely done away with, we could camp out right here. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. He forgives all my iniquity. Josh knows me and still invited me to preach. That says something. Like, it's either he was really desperate to fill the pulpit this morning, or he's very gracious. He forgives my iniquities as a friend, but that's nothing compared to what God does, because God can see right through me. He knows when I'm lying about things, even when I'm lying to myself about him. It's crazy. So, 
That's spending way too long on one point. But you kind of get the idea. David's not being nice to us as far as the richness of every statement that he makes could be brought out and just pouring over. So I'm going to try to refrain, hold it back in, and let's go on. So he heals all your diseases. Again, we have the all. And here is one of those where you could go all wonky on this and you can create some kind of religion just out of this stuff. And don't overthink this. It is not he heals all your diseases, therefore you should go out and become a televangelist and heal people by sending Holy Spirit balls through the TV or something weird like that. It's just the fact that, think about the context. They had diseases. And God even promised, listen, if you'll obey me, you will have none of the diseases that plagued these other pagan nations. That was one of the things he promised Israel. And then he, he will literally heal diseases over and over again in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes, he was constantly healing people of their diseases. But the idea that you can get here, David doesn't know about what Jesus is going to do, is that there is nothing in this sin-cursed world that can resist the power of God. Whether it's our human fragility, our frailty, the fact that we do not do what we should do, or our depravity, the sins, the diseases that come as a result of our sin. None of that can stand before God. He heals all our diseases. And as Junie B. Jones says, we're having to listen to Junie B. Jones because of our eight-year-old. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. So he redeems, those of you who have no idea who Junie B. Jones is, you just look it up. It's children's literature. But she's a, she's a great little character. All right. Redeems, <laughs> I guess right now would be a good time to, to tell you something about me. Sometimes I have these rabbit trails, but I don't call them rabbit trails because the movie Up came out and those dogs are distracted by squirrels. And so there are moments where Patrick will do something similar to that squirrel and we'll just kind of go. But the good thing is I bring it back and we get it back on track. <clears throat> and it's become famous enough there in Brazil that I, they actually call me Pastor Squirrel in some of the places. So it's kind of sad. So that was a squirrel, just in case you were wondering where that went. Junie B. Jones. Yep, squirrel coming back. All right. Re- he redeems your life from the pit or the grave. Now, understanding what David would understand about death and dying He didn't have, I've got a mansion kind of mentality. He did not have even the the information we have in the New Testament. So the grave or the pit was where people went. They, They did not know much more about what was happening on the other side of that. And he is talking about this idea. He is redeeming your life from the pit. He knew about salvation, but he knew about it to the degree that someone in that time period would know. But here's one thing we can do, and this really fits into this day and age with this global pandemic and the fears that people have to insane degrees. Christians ought not to ever fear death. No, we don't want it. It's not fun. Lingering death is not great at all. But all you have to do is talk to anyone in the medical field, and it's like 80 to 85% of every single one of us will die through disease. That's great, Patrick. Thank you for that. But we will all die. We're all dying at varying degrees, at varying paces, sometimes at surprising events. But the idea is we're all headed to the grave. And he says, our life is redeemed. There is no fear in death for those who are in Christ. There was no fear in death, and David didn't even have the the portion. He knew about the Messiah coming, but he didn't know about Jesus like we do. He didn't even, he knew it was a descendant of his, (laughs) but he didn't know what we know. When it comes to a global pandemic like this, I think Christians should be at the forefront 
of serving those who genuinely fear death because we do not. Just like when the Spanish uh, flu came out and Christians were the ones serving because, and serving in conditions where they even got it because they were there knowing, if I die from this, this is not the end. It's not even a bad end. It is glory. So he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with, and I'm going I'm to substitute this word right here. I know that Josh has covered chesed. Does he spit it like that? Does he? Okay, good. All right, because he got to spit it. It's Hebrew. Chesed. Um, those of you who knew Dr. Sh- uh, knew Dr. Schrader when he was here in this area, my father-in-law, the Hebrew professor, I think Josh probably was under him as well, um, he had a dog named Chesed. That's how much he liked that word, and he did a lot of stuff on that. And Chesed wasn't a very faithful dog. He disappeared. We're not even sure where he went. But um, I don't mean to you know, besmirch the memory of Chesed, but uh, like you have a dog named Covenant Faithfulness, and he's gone. You know, like here, boy. Um, okay, so I'm going to refer to this Chesed as Covenant Faithful Love. Some places you see steadfast love, some places you see loyal love, but steadfast and loyal have linguistic connotations. But I like faithful to the covenant. So Covenant Faithful Love, because the idea of Chesed is is actually that. And I won't hit you with any other Hebrew from this point on. I just knew that. Your pastor's already done that. So the idea is this word means that God promised and therefore he will. His love is not love that comes and goes. It isn't the love of this world at all. It isn't the love that says, I love you deeply, uh, but next week I'm taking you off all of my social media because we're not friends anymore. That's not love. And he is not loving in that way. He is loving in a way that lasts because he promises to and therefore he does. Covenant faithful love. When he promises something, he will always come through. It is impossible, and that's always a dangerous word with God, but it is impossible for God to be inconsistent with his own character. So if he says it, it will happen. And the idea here is that that's the kind of love he has. It's not mushy, gushy, feeling love. It is love that transcends anything we could possibly understand. So he crowns you, he's, still, so he's talking to his soul, with covenant faithful love, and then I'm going to substitute the next word with compassion. And why am I substituting? Just because I want to have consistent words that we understand what these words are reflecting from the Hebrew. Because mercy sometimes gets translated for chesed. And then this next word, which is mercy in, in some of the texts here, I think in the ESV it's mercy, is a different word. And so it gets confusing. So I'm going to refer to the second word, and I promise you no Hebrew, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. You can ask me later. This second word, I'm going to call it compassion, because it is compassion as described. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it here a little ways down, but it's the kind of compassion that is described as a mother's love. God has some interesting portions of scripture where he compares himself to a mother, and he's not getting weird with gender. He's just saying, I love you like mothers love their children. And the idea is that kind of compassion. So if you want warm, fuzzy, jacuzzi filled with hot cookie dough, you know, that kind of, or some weird metaphor of your choice. Um, if you want something like that kind of oozing kind of love, you need to go with the second word, which is the compassionate part. But the first word is this covenant faithful love. It's a lot drier, but it's a lot more important because it doesn't fail in in the sense of not more important than the mercy, but more important that we understand love that way than to understand it in, oh, I've got to have the warm fuzzies. You want warm fuzzies, get some socks. All right. (laughs) 
Not in this weather, especially. All right, so if you continue to see what he's saying, he's saying, and I've got too many things going on here. So he says, he, uh, here we go. So who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love, and then the, fa- the last one here, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So that's the last of the things that he's saying here, blessed. But this one was an interesting one. Because I was so stuck on the chesed, on the covenant faithful love part of this, because I, I kind of geek out when I get to Exodus 34. And so when I read anything that refers to Exodus that is 34. I'm like, oh, there's another one. There's another one. Great. Uh, so when we get down to that portion, and I'll explain, don't worry, uh, I kind of got stuck on that. So it wasn't until I was going over and specifically going through each one of these lines that I, that I realized what a line this is. Satisfies you with good, and then the, the uh, idea of renewing your youth. Do you realize, I don't know if sometimes, I mean, I think as a Christian, especially, I know what kind of pastor you have. I know what kind of people you are related to God's word. So I think we can all understand this. But we live in a discontented, dissatisfied, constantly wanting more society. Now, that's happened ever since Eve, Adam and Eve, you know. But the, the idea is that the, the level of dissatisfaction with life has grown to epic proportions. There is a book that's considered the Bible of Psychiatry and Psychology, the DSM. It's in its fifth edition. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you know, it goes on. That the idea is there are over 400 possible diagnoses that you can get, 400, that say that you who experience these symptoms for a period of time with a certain level of severity are mentally diseased. You, there's something wrong with you, is the conclusion that, the, that the, all those 400 diagnoses. Some of you might, uh, well, I don't have anything as heavy as schizophrenia, you know. Maybe not, but there's the one about how cranky you get when you don't have caffeine. That's a mental diagnosis. diagnosis. You're like, really? I just thought that was a chemical dependence, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but so, Understanding that, why am I mentioning the DSM? Because the DSM has a very interesting thing in that it observes human behavior. And so many of those over 400 diagnoses talk about the fact that people are not content. They may not say it in those words, but at the end of it, it's, there's two sides of it. Not getting what you want, not wanting what you get. Sound like James? says, you know, why are, why are there wars and fights among you? Is it not this? You, you know, that whole idea, you're, you're asking for things, and you're, you're not getting them, and you're not asking for the right reasons. But the idea of getting what you, not getting what you want, or not wanting what you get. Elizabeth Elliot, one of my, our favorite authors, and definitely Anjanelle's favorite author, I would think, one of the tops, uh, married to Jim Elliott, one of the five missionaries who died in uh, 1950s in Ecuador. If you don't know the story, please look that up. It's very good. Elizabeth Elliott defines suffering this way. Not getting what you want and, and uh, getting what you don't want. or Not wanting what you have, not having what you want. You could put it that way. And if that's suffering, that's something all of us suffer through. And he satisfies. Have you ever thought about sin in this way? Like something sinful that you're like, I, I keep doing this and I shouldn't. I'm in Romans 7. Oh, the miserable man that I am. I don't want to do this, but I do it. And I don't want to do that and I do it. And then I do want to do this, but I end up not doing it. 
I think we've all been there and might still be in certain parts of our life that way. And that kind of idea is this, this constant struggle with not being satisfied. So have you ever thought of sin in this way? How do I know that something is sinful versus just everyday life and stuff? Because it, it, I desire it to a degree that I'm willing to sin for it, but then I'm not satisfied when I get it. Have you ever thought about how unsatisfying sin is? How, how, the fact is we think I need this to this degree, but then the moment we've had it, it's tasteless. We're not having any fun anymore. There's a story there about a Cheesecake Factory moment with Josh that you will have to ask him about. <laughs> I'm not even enjoying this anymore, was the line. And so you'll have to ask him about the rest of it. I've <laughs> piqued your curiosity, I'm sure. All right. Had to do with two pieces of cheesecake. All right. So the idea is we think about in this life, it, it, things that should satisfy us, and they don't. What in this life? What in this entire existence that we have can we say, when I do this, I am completely satisfied and I don't want any more? Forever. Even 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, he satisfies with good. So the, even a line like that, which I had kind of just glossed over, it's rich. And in satisfying us with good, it says he renews our youth. And you should think immediately, if you know the portion over there in Isaiah chapter 40, where they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, they will mount up with wings as eagles. So the idea here is, um, most likely, since Isaiah came later, Isaiah may have thought of this psalm when he wrote that, or they're just parallels uh, in Scripture. So the idea here in this first part, bless the Lord, O my soul, and then all of these things that he mentions, and he says, this is why you, David... And this is why you, reader, should praise God. Is that me? Or is there something behind me? <laughs> Look quick. Okay. Is it my beard? Oh, man. Well, okay. Well, the beard's staying, so the mic may have to go. All right. So the idea here, he has gone through this and he has said um, these blessings, and he's gone to the idea of, I need to praise God with everything I have because God is worthy of praise. He has this character. And there's absolutely no way I'm going to make through this. So let's go quickly into a reminder of corporate um, reflection on God's character. And I want to read this part right here because this right here is big. First of all, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip over this by just mentioning it and then moving on to the next part. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now there are three places in here where he mentions the Lord does something or the Lord is something. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness. Then later down below, the Lord um, is in verse, uh, let's see, 8, is merciful and gracious. And then later down in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. So we have three different sections of what God is mentioning, saying the Lord is like this, which is what you have right here. God is righteous, uh, point A. God is loving, point B. And then God is sovereign over all, point A of the third point. And the idea is he's going to mention this righteousness. And again, you could camp out on righteousness and justice 
all day long. Because here he is focusing on God's righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And then he's going to mention his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. Because he's setting us up for verse 8. Because verse 8 happens right in the smack dab in the beginning of the history of the people of Israel as the people of the covenant, as the people of God right there at Mount Sinai. So when he talks about righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, he's setting the tone because he's not going to talk so much about our sins in the sense of a call to repentance. He's going to talk more about it as sins in the, in the sense that they're forgiven. This is a psalm of praise. We have been forgiven. God is forgiving. So that's all I'm going to say about that, but that, there's a lot of richness there, of course, with righteousness and justice. And when we talk about the righteousness and justice of God, it's a huge deal. We're living in times where people do not understand righteousness or justice. They think justice means fairness. They think justice means uh, I should get everything equally with everybody else around me. And that's not true. That's not even biblical. You know, so there's a lot of things here that I can't hit. But the idea of this, he is justice for the oppressed. And now he's going to make his ways known to Moses and the people of Israel. And then he says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or the Lord is compassionate, that's that one word, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in this covenant faithful love. This is quoting almost directly from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And because this quotes almost directly from that, I want to read that to you because to me it's one of the most important texts in the Bible. Now that's a big thing to say, but this text right here is one that I have heard very little about over all my life as, as a Christian. And it wasn't until I was listening to a Bible Project video. Are you familiar with Bible Project? They've got some great videos. I don't always agree with where they're going with certain things, but they've got great videos. If you want to have like an overview of the Bible, overview of a book of the Bible, overview of a concept of the Bible, their tree of life thing is a little weird. Uh, but as, as you go through, they've got some great stuff. And theirs on Exodus 34 is really interesting. But they just mentioned it in passing. And the reason why this stuck out in my mind personally, Patrick, was because when I read this, I realized that this book that I have a pet peeve about, Jonah, and how Jonah is so often misread, Jonah is not the greatest missionary. <laughs> Jonah was not serving God willingly. There's a lot of things in there. So as I'm, I know Jonah really well, and I'm like, this is what Jonah quotes to God. He quotes Exodus 34 to God and says, yes, God, I'm angry enough to want to die because you're merciful and just and slow to anger. And you're he was saying, God, you're so great. You're not going to kill them. There, there's my Jonah squirrel for you. Okay. So, but he quotes Exodus 34. So it says here, the Lord descended in the cloud. Let me look at the time. Look at this. Okay. Quick recap before I go down to this. Exodus. We get the people out of Egypt. Everybody knows the Red Sea story. We get out there. They grumble. We all know that. They get to the law. Everybody falls asleep. We don't know that part very well. And so we're like, oh, yeah, I know. He says a bunch of things about stuff. And there's, I think there's mold, isn't there? And yeah, and then he mentions the tabernacle. And oh, my word, he really goes into detail on that. And I still don't understand how it's shaped. You know? So we go through all of that crisis. And he explains all of that. But something important happens. Around chapter 19, God establishes a covenant. And then he says, 
I'm going to send Moses up the mountain, and he's going to get this in writing. <clears throat> i got a printer up here, and we're going to print it off, 3D print, because it was tablets, and he's going to bring it down. And so he, he's going to head up, and the people are sitting there saying, we will obey everything that's in this law. And while Moses is up there, you guys know the story, he's up there for 40 days. They had a longer attention span than we do. We learned from a guy last week, we were uh, in uh, our sending church, and he said that they've measured the average attention span of a human being. It's less than a goldfish. Because a goldfish measures in at nine seconds, and we're at 8.25 and falling. What was that? Yeah, exactly. And so the idea is we have, they had a 40-day attention span, or at least how many days before they built the calf. And so they build the golden calf, and Aaron gives the lamest excuse ever recorded in history for making an idol. I mean, oh, we just threw it in there and it popped up. You know, it was, <laughs> oh, it was awful. But, so all of that is happening while Moses is up on the mountain. Great God experience. Oh, you know, he's up, and he comes down and they're just killing it. They're, they are breaking the covenant that they just said a few chapters before that they were going to obey as much as possible. So we're, we're around Exodus 32 when God says, Moses, I need you to go down the mountain. There's a problem. And I'm going to zap them off the planet. And Moses doesn't change God's mind, but he, he Moses, learns something. And he, by learning it, says it to God. And, and it's, it's understood there. God says, you're right, Moses. I can't zap them. That would be a problem because I'd be breaking something of mine. It would be my covenant I'd be breaking. So he doesn't do it, and Moses goes down. Moses does a great feat, grinds those tablets into powder, makes the people drink it. It sounds just like a parent. No, you're going to drink it. Drink it all down. You wonder if it, like, effervescent or anything. No, he just makes them do it. And then, if that's not enough, I need somebody who will kill people. Levi's sons will do it. 3,000 people. And then God sends a plague. So, I mean, there was punishment involved. After all of this happens... You never knew Exodus was so exciting after the, Dead, uh, the Red Sea part. Anyway, we get to Exodus 34, and God is saying, I'm going to give you new tablets. Not, I'm going to rewrite my law. I'm going to give you what I told you, and I'm going to do it again because the people need this. And so he says he's going to show Moses, not his glory. He says, you can't see my glory. You're, I'm going to pass, and you're going to see basically what would be like the train, the hind parts of God as he walks away, what's left when God leaves the room. And in doing so, God does something he doesn't do anywhere else before this in Scripture. He describes himself. Not, hi, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Not that one. This one, where he actually says, I want you to know what I'm like. And listen to this. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, that's the compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is the covenant faithfulness. Faithfulness is trustworthiness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Wow. And over here in Psalm 103, he quotes it almost exactly. And he's quoting it so that we understand the link because he wants to talk about this. And it's interesting because the one thing he leaves out of the five attributes that are there is the slow to anger part. Though he does mention it right after that, kind of, in verse 9 when he says, He will not always chide, he will, nor will he keep his anger forever. So it's in there. But David is wanting, saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
Because God is who he is. And let's, as a congregation, bless God because he is like this. And so he then continues to, to, to talk about it. And, um, yeah, it's so hard to do. What did Josh do to me by giving? Anyway, so he, the, the, uh, the compassionate part I've already mentioned is like a mother's love. The gracious part is finding favor or merit. God is gracious. He gives us what we completely do not deserve. And think about it, the situation. These people just broke the law he gave them after saying they would. Eight chapters later, they're, they're, they're done. He's saying, I'm still going to love you. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. There's, there's that factor. The justice of God still has to factor in. All right. So then he is slow to anger. That's a great expression. means long of nostrils. Because when you're hot with anger in Hebrew, your, your nostrils are hot. You can see like a bull, you know. And if you're long of nostrils, it takes a little bit long. It's a short fuse, long fuse kind of situation. It's just your nose. All right. And slow to anger. And if God is slow to anger, and you think about the times, he took generations sometimes to do things. But when the wrath of God, and let's think about future events, when the wrath of God finally happens, when he stomps out the grapes of his wrath, it will be something we have never even imagined. And the mind-blowing thing about that is go to Revelation, because he does it, and he pours out his wrath, and it repeatedly says, and still they would not refuse to worship the beast. Still they would not worship God. That's how stubborn and messed up we are as people. So then he says, he will not always, oh, and then of course, chesed, abounding in covenant faithful love. So verse 9, he will not always chide, he will keep, nor will he keep his anger forever. Parents know how this is. <laughs> the chiding is the kind of accusation, the idea that uh, sometimes we want to keep our anger forever, and we should realize that <clears throat> not even God does that, that God is forgiving, He is merciful, He is gracious. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, which is what He should do. And one of the things we understand that David would not have had this information is that the reason why you and I, or any person on this planet, will not answer for our iniquities in the long run is because God poured out his wrath, and it went all into Jesus. Jesus took the entire wrath of God. It's like a freight train coming at you, and the freight train is the wrath of God. And for all those who believe, Jesus stands in the way and takes the full force of the train. But for those who are not in Christ, they take the brunt of it, and that's the everlasting damnation of God's wrath. So here, he does not do this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... He wanted a measurement that would have no end. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his covenant faithful love towards those who fear him. Then he wants another measurement that's unending, so he goes east-west. You will never, if you go east, you will never arrive technically at the west. You will just keep going around, keep going east and as far as the west. Because these measurements, of course, geographically we understand, but the idea is these measurements have no point of uh, finding themselves. And so as far as he, the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. Oh, that we were so forgiving with others as God is with us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, and he presumes, of course, that a father shows compassion, but that's the idea, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? Why does he do all this? He knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. As a man, for as man, our, our days are like grass. We, we got here on May 10th. We noticed all the wildflowers. Now, June 20th, we're driving down the road, where are all the wildflowers? They're gone. 
they flourish. And then the wind passes over and it is gone. And the place knows it no more. That's us. That's us as a vapor, James describes us. But what's God like? The steadfast, the covenant faithful love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. That children's children, throwing us back to Exodus 34 again, to those who keep His covenant and to remember to do His commandments. So an interesting thing about this portion is that he's bringing up this idea of God's forgiveness. But he does not offer a forgiveness that is carte blanche and does not have a qualification to it. It is constantly steadfast love to those who fear him. Steadfast love to those who fear him. And then right here, those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And that's where the world's got it all wrong. If you love me, you will not put any restrictions on me. And God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so here he's saying over and over again, that whole idea of, yes, all are welcome, fine. But there's a transformation that happens once you're welcomed. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are, because that would be wrong. You've got, there's got to be a heart change. There's got to be something that happens. So he says this, then he goes into the next portion, and we can wrap this up in a whirlwind. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. You can't get any clearer than that. His kingdom rules over all. There's nothing that is not under the rule of God. There is nothing that is outside His control. There is nothing that can happen at any point in our existence that God is not aware of and that God is not involved in. It's just not going to happen. We had a sad moment one time out in California visiting an, a friend of Anjanelle's, and she had cancer, which eventually took her life. And she said in no uncertain terms, I was trying to comfort by talking about God's control, God's sovereignty, God's being in, in, in knowing all of this. And she said, God cannot be in control because I have cancer. If God were in control, this would not be happening to me. Well, you guys obviously see the problem with that. Because if everything that goes wrong means God's not in control, I really don't think that that's a kind of God we want to serve. If God loses the steering wheel every time something bad happens... And don't sing Jesus take the wheel. Okay, if God, the idea is, if if God is not in control at this point, what are what are we depending on? It's a scary thought. I would much rather a world in which God is in control and I don't understand it, than a world in which I have all the answers but God is weak and can't do anything about it. Well, go back to Greece and start worshiping those gods. They were pretty lame. So all right. Um, I'm Zeus, God of thunder, but I spend all my time dallying with people on earth, and I'm a, just a big baby. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Sorry, those of you who like Greek mythology. All right. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. I told you there were four. It starts with his kingdom rules over all. Now all his hosts, he, he could have said all his angels, but the all is not there. But he's talking about the angels, he's talking about the hosts, which would be like warriors in an army, but then he talks about ministers. So he's connecting those two, and then uh, maybe that old song, I'm in the Lord's Army, is not too far off. Okay, And then all his works in all places of his dominion. He's calling for everything to bless, to praise God, and then he returns to his soul. So if you're the kind of person who likes cinematic effects, 
He starts with, bless the Lord, O my soul, and then it just keeps going out, 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 and then it gets massive, and there's music, and there's a soaring crescendo of orchestral something, ah, and then it all sucks back in. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Isn't it amazing? He got all of that into this in, in just a few lines, and each line is rich with meaning. So let's quickly look at these implications, because we could, there could be implications till the cows come home. All right. And I'm in Missouri, so I'm obviously thinking of something about cows coming home automatically. Cow squirrel. All right. Uh, my family knows me. They're sitting back there like he's holding something in his head. Okay. All right. Am I, here are the implications, am I reminding myself to worship God? Do you do, you do that? On a day-to-day -day basis, do you remind yourself to worship God? Whose praises am I proclaiming in my thoughts, my speech, which would include these days my social media, what I project to the world? Social media, the ability to be an idiot to the entire world at once, you know. Um, but that idea that you can just say whatever you're thinking and we find out all of a sudden that millions of people really shouldn't have a voice. I mean, no, please don't say anymore, right? That may just be my opinion. It's got awfully quiet. Okay, so social media is, is basically where, where uh, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Social media is just an application of that. Out of the abundance of the heart, you post things on your social media, whether it's cute cat videos or the latest rant and rave, that's pouring out of your heart. And if it's in your heart, it needs to be dealt with, correct? So, am I proclaiming my thoughts, speech, and behavior? Am I proclaiming, whose praises am I proclaiming? And this is something I, I get convicted about because I can be all excited about some trinket that I found in a sci-fi related something or other and tell people about it and realize that was dumb. That was a waste of words, as we say, Edmund. <laughs> yeah, so the idea, why am I talking about this? There are much more important, much greater things. Whose praise am I proclaiming? Is my worship all-encompassing? Does it reach to every... He talks about going to all the places that God has dominion. And is my worship even reaching all the places in me? Is it all-encompassing, as, as opposed to a restricted form? Some people think praise is only music. Worship is more than that. Um, praise is only for certain times. It's for all time. Is it just for a certain part of me? This is my praise personality, and this is my not praise personality. You, you guys understand that. Watch Tim Hawkins and Praise Hands, and you'll understand more about that. It's kind of funny. All right. If I make any references that you don't know, I wish I had links. Like, oh, that'll be linked in the... Uh, so, but if I make any references that later you're like, what's that about? Uh, you might want to clear that up later. All right. Every believer ought to understand the importance of a healthy and biblical view of God. Now, I know that seems trite, that seems so basic, but sometimes we do not know God like we should know God from being believers who know His Word. I'm constantly uh, amazed at how many people we know in Brazil who have been longtime believers. And you can say, well, haven't you read this part? And they'll be like, no, really, I haven't. We, we need to know this book. We need to know what God says about himself. And how, at, to what point do we know him and have a healthy view of him? Not my view of how I read this, but what God actually said about himself. So does my worship flow from my self-informed thoughts and feelings about God? or from a God-informed knowledge of God through His Word. How am I supposed to know about God? Well, He's everywhere. Mm, easy. <laughs> he is everywhere, but let's go to the Bible and make sure we're not getting all pan, whatever, you know. He's here, and He's talking to us. You want to know what God said? 
read it, because he said it, and he said it about himself, just like this Exodus 34 that practically no one talks about, and God's telling us who he is. We want to know five major attributes that God himself said were important. There they are. How can a misinformed view of God alter my Christian walk and worship? I'm sure at this church, because of the biblical counseling connection everything, we t you guys talk about heart, heart idolatry, right? I think one of the most treacherous idols existent, existing on the planet is the idol of Christians who worship the right God in the wrong way, and by doing so are worshiping an idol. You get it? He's God, but you are not worshiping as he should be. Like he is not, he is not God of the Bible. He's this God that is in the Bible, but you made him to be the God in your own image. That's dangerous because you can have the walk and talk and everything of a believer and not actually be worshiping the true God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is a highly underrated passage of Scripture. God himself told man in a very concise way what he wanted us to know about him. How does our life reflect this tension between gracious, compassionate, faithful love of God and his crushing, righteous, wrathful justice? Because it is. The wrath of God will be poured out on man. Now, whether or not you're in Christ or not in Christ is the key, but it will be. We tend to err, or err, depending on who's here and who's going to correct my grammar, toward one extreme or another. How can knowing God better correct that in ourselves? What extremes? The idea of God is all love, and therefore He would never condemn, and <clears throat> God is all condemning, and He would never love. And we... Uh, Swing back and forth between those and that tension. And how will correcting that to where we understand God is both of those things? He is a God who loves. He's so faithful in His love that we can read a text like this and understand He's going to be way more faithful than we ever will be. So how does that change our views? And make us bless the Lord with all our soul, with all that is in us. Bless His name. Father, we thank you for this time that we had together in Scripture. I know it was fast. I know it was in, in many ways rushed, not in a bad sense, but that we had a lot to get through. And I pray, Father, that as we go through this, that your word, not something I said or something I misspoke, but your word will be what we reflect on as we leave here, that you will help us to keep in our minds and our hearts what we read, what hopefully each one of us will reread, what we will do to focus on how you are an amazing, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, covenant, faithful God. And that everything surrounds that. Everything should flow from that. And help us, Lord, to understand and call ourselves to worship, to praise you, call others to praise you, to call the entire universe to praise you. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Mm -hmm.